0: Today, I want to tell you a story, a story about two painters, the price of art, and your approach to making an impact and leading well. My name is Adam Shaw, and this is The Restorationist. Well, hey, everybody hope you're having a fantastic and wonderful day. Welcome to The Restorationist, a podcast exploring how we can all live and lead like the first century Book of Acts Church while living in the 21st century. I want to say thank you so much for listening. And if this podcast has helped you in any way, please, if you could do me this favor and, and consider subscribing, leaving a review, or maybe sharing it with your friends and family and help us getting the word out there about it just a reminder for all of you who are listeners of the podcast that I'm doing an Ask Me Anything episode really, really soon. So if you've ever wanted to ask me any questions on ministry or leadership, preaching, life in general, I mean, you name it, you can do that. We've got a bunch of questions that have been submitted already thus far, but I want to give you another opportunity to go ahead and ask that question. All you need to do is fill out the Google form in the show notes or If you follow me on social media, just send me a message. Send me a message there. I'll try to do my best to get right to it. So a few years ago, I stumbled across a Malcolm Gladwell podcast on genius. The episode was called Hallelujah, and the ideas presented in it, as well as the ones that were in David Galenson's book, Old Masters and Young Geniuses, they have been eating at me for around two, maybe three years. Really, for, for real, I've been sitting on this thing, this idea, this this stuff I heard. It's been in my head for about about two years, two years now. And I even went so far as to buy David Galenson's book. It's it's a really heavy read. It's not something I normally read again. The book's called Old Masters and Young Geniuses and. David is, is an economist who is exploring the life cycle and impact of creative works. And at the very beginning of his book, he picks the work and method of two very famous artists against each other and shows how they are the archetypes of two very distinct types of creativity. This is really interesting to me, so I dove right into his work. Again, the book is kind of heavy, but I found the ideas so captivating. And the two artists that he pits against one another as archetypes of creativity are Pablo Picasso and Paul Cezanne. Now, Pablo Picasso was a Spanish painter from the early 20th century. You've probably heard of him even if you're not super familiar with his art. You've probably been pay, you know, playing a game of, of, of Pictionary with your family during COVID lockdown, and you hold up your little hand-scratch drawing stick figure, and you're like, this is no Picasso, but clearly this is a guy riding a horse. Because the name Picasso, you refer to Picasso because the name Pablo Picasso has become so synonymous with artistic greatness. You may not be intimately familiar with cubism, but you know you know that whatever he did was pretty good because everyone says he's a great painter. And, and what's cool is Picasso represents the work of a conceptual innovator. Picasso was a conceptual artist. He's this archetype of a conceptual creative. And he's he's known, as I said, for for co-founding Cubism. And if you don't know what that is, there is a link in the show notes to some famous Picasso paintings. Now, Picasso is called conceptual because all conceptual art, especially his, appears suddenly. There are these new ideas that are radically different from everyone else's work, and they just like pop onto the scene. And Picasso, when, when would, he would be asked about his creative approach, he would often very proudly state, I don't seek, I find. Because he, he didn't paint what he saw necessarily. He, he painted how he imagined things to be. He was a guy that trusted in the genius of his own creativity. And Picasso, like all conceptual innovators, whether they're poets or movie makers or artists, their, their works are lauded as, as breakthroughs. They They're the young geniuses whose work explodes on the scene very early. And what they do changes the game rapidly. And then they move on to something else and they change the game again and again and again and again. German artist, Oskar Schlemmer, he said that Picasso had this uncanny ability to change his style and his approach to whatever suited him in the moment and that he had no real commitment to any sort of form or style of painting. I'm I'm no art guy, like at all, but Picasso seemed like a pretty confident, even kind of cocky dude. He's not the image of the stereotypical tortured artist. In fact, from what I read in David Galen's book, once his draft had been painted, he would sign it, date it, often with the exact time that it was finished, and then he would just move on, move on to something else. His work was about displaying the creativity of his own mind, Dazzling with new idea after new idea early in his career. This is why he serves as such a contrast to his creative opposite, the painter Paul Cezanne, Because Cezanne he represents the experimental innovator and artist. He's pretty much the opposite of a Picasso. He said... I seek in painting. Picasso said, I find, I don't seek. Cezanne's like, no, I, I seek. Because Paul represents all those creatives who are straining to best paint what they have seen. See, unlike innovators, experimenters' goals are somewhat imprecise. Because they're never trying to present the genius of their own imagination, but they're attempting to faithfully represent the image that has captivated them. And so because of these wildly different goals, experimenters often rarely feel like they have succeeded. They're very different from the conceptual innovators that are very bold and confident in the creative genius that what they of what they have made. These experimenters, they very rarely feel like they they are a success they struggle with their own personal problem of perception they understand that there is often a gap between the thing that they have seen and their ability to recreate it on canvas and so as a result they consider the production of painting a process of searching in which they aim to discover the image on canvas as they paint. Experimenters, they're really they're really unique artists because they often repeat themselves over and over and over and over again. They go back to the same image and they paint it over and over and over again. And they don't live with the same sense of accomplishment as as I mentioned earlier, as the uh, as the Picasso's of the world. They live with that nagging sense of frustration that. They just aren't there yet. This was true of Paul Cezanne. His career was dominated by a single objective, this idea of unraveling the mystery of perception and perfectly representing the impact of what he has seen. His real goal at least according to him and according to those that i have read about him, his real goal was not to make paintings, but to make progress towards this singular goal of unraveling the mystery of perception. Daniel Sylvester writes, he said, because experimental artists alternate between looking at the model and at the canvas, painters do not actually copy what they see. In fact, he says, no one ever copies anything, but the vision that remains of it in each moment. The artist can only put down what remains in his head after he has looked at the image he is trying to paint. So in other words, an experimenter looks and then paints. You look, you paint, you look, you paint, trying so hard to get it right. And for a painter as committed, Galen says, as, as Cezanne was to the visual accuracy, this gap between perception and execution became a source of anxiety, really. And so he would paint over and over again the same thing, the same bowl of fruit. He would paint the same thing over and over and over and over again. And very rarely would he ever consider his paintings to be finished. He would often put them down with the intention of picking them back up again. And as a result, unlike Picasso... Paul Cezanne would very rarely sign his works. He would often discard them. He would throw them away. It's wild to think about it. But Paul Cezanne thought so little of his work that he often would discard it. And and his students would often find old canvases in the woods, in bushes, or even in ditches along routes that he would take to work as he would discard a painting after it was done or if it did not turn out the way that he felt like it should. He voiced his frustration to one of his young students in a letter near the end of his life, the end of his career, where he exclaimed, Will I ever attain the end for which I have striven so much and so long, so I continue to study? You know, as I was thinking through this letter that Cezanne wrote to this student of his, I was struck by the words, and I thought to myself, I can't think of a more profound metaphor for life and biblical leadership than this. I mean, can you? I mean, we all want to be Picasso. We want to be that confident maverick where we work out an idea in our head or, you know, sketch out an idea in our notebook in a cool coffee shop and then boom, it works. But reality is often more complex than that. I have discovered that innovation, creativity, and success is often way more of an experimental process where... While we all sing through a glass darkly, try and figure it out as we go along. If anything, COVID-19 has cracked open the fallacy of the certain genius of our plans. And I'm going to be honest, that makes me feel very uncomfortable. Very uncomfortable. Because I'm a perfectionist, if I'm going to continue to be transparent with all of you. And as as a bit or a lot of a perfectionist, I become so irritated with myself when ideas don't work out right the first time that I try them. And and I know I know this is nonsensical, but it's the way I'm wired. I despise any sort of feeling of failure. I hate to fail, but reality is. Life is much more experimental than conceptual, and as a result, there is going to be a whole lot of failure if we're going to ever get this right. Very few of us get an idea in our heads and then flawlessly execute in a single take. Life and leadership, I have discovered, is often a painful cycle of trial and error. We're like Cezanne; We get pain on the canvas, only to then scrape it all off and start all over again with the same picture. So, so what, what am I saying? Um, I guess if I were to anchor the implications of this idea around a single big point, it, it would be this. Remember, you are a work in progress. Remember, you are a work in progress. No one arrives immediately at anything, especially when you look at life and you look at leadership through the lens of a biblical worldview. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12 through 14. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Jesus Christ has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What's Paul saying here? He's saying, I'm not there yet. I'm not done yet. I have I've not yet arrived. There's still so much more work to be done yet in me. I have not yet fully apprehended the thing that has apprehended me. I I'm not done yet. Paul understood the problem of perception. He's seen Jesus. But the image of Jesus hasn't fully been recreated in him yet. He's seen Jesus, and Jesus has gotten a hold of him, but he doesn't fully look like Jesus yet. He's incomplete. He hasn't yet been fully made over into the image of Christ. There's still a little of the Saul of Tarsus left inside Paul the Apostle. He knows this. So, no matter how many epistles he's written, shipwrecks, endured places he's preached, he says, I gotta die daily. I've gotta crucify this flesh. I'm not done yet, Paul is saying in Philippians. And neither are you. You never just wake up with a clear mental picture of spiritual maturity, growth, success, and magically arrive at perfect execution. We must realize that like all experimental artists, we've got to continually go and get another look at the image we're trying to recreate in us. We got to go and get another look at the image of Jesus. We gotta go and get another look at what he is calling us to do. We gotta go and get another look of who he is calling us to be because we have a problem of perception. We are the canvas, and our whole being is attempting to press itself into the mold of Jesus Christ, but inside of us, there is a distortion that still lingers. We don't yet fully know how to fully and perfectly represent the image of Jesus on the canvas of our life and the leadership that we live in his kingdom. So like Paul, we have to say, I'm not fully attained yet. I'm not there yet. I'm not done yet. There is nothing in our lives. Hear me. If I could, you know, continuing on with this anchor point that you're still a work in progress, I I want you to hear this, this, this like sub point to that. There is nothing in our lives where we can say we have truly arrived ever. Nothing. In our lives where we can say we have truly arrived. And, and if we're to drill down in this idea practically a little bit more, leaders, I want you to hear me. The moment you stop growing, you start dying as a leader. The moment you stop growing, the moment you feel that you've got you've got it all figured out, that you've got a corner on this, that that you, you know, you You're like the Picasso. You're the bright, smart person that can just, you know, make it happen. And you no longer feel that compulsion to keep scraping the the stuff off the canvas that shouldn't be there so you can make it more perfect, make it better. The moment you lose that relentless passion to grow is the moment your influence starts to die. Your ability to make an impact begins to die and your vision begins to die. And the moment you feel like you have arrived is the moment that pride has overtaken you as a leader. Hear me, the most effective leaders are humble leaders, Because a humble leader like, you know, this experimental innovator is willing to take a hard look at the image that he is trying or she is trying to represent and is willing to scrape off and discard from the canvas the things that should not be there no matter how long it took to get them there in the first place. It's taking a hard look at the character of Jesus and scraping off from your life the things that do not match up. It's taking a hard look at the person that he has called you to become. It's understanding you have not fully apprehended that upward call of Christ Jesus. So as a result, you ruthlessly edit out of your time, out of your mind, out of your habits, the things that do not reflect that image and that upward call and the person he has called you to be. It means that as a leader... As a follower of Jesus, embrace that you are in continual improvement in every aspect of your life. None of us have it figured out because none of us have been completed yet. What's this mean, Adam? This means that, if I'm going to be honest with you, I haven't figured out how to pray effectively yet. The way I really feel like I can. I haven't fully figured out how to put together the perfect sermon yet. Half the time I interview these preachers, I'm trying to figure out, you know, how to grow as much as I'm trying to share something with an audience. I, I, I haven't figured out the perfect spiritual disciplines yet. I, I'm still trying to hack away at my life so that I can become more of what he wants me to be. I haven't figured out the, the, the right way to put a podcast on yet. I, I'm nervous every time I sit down in front of this microphone. Why? Because I haven't arrived My character, spirituality, disciplines, my approach to growth, I'm not there yet. I'm trying to figure it out as I go. And so, if we're honest, so are all of us. Now, here's what's so incredible. Is, unlike Cezanne, who's staring at that real bowl of fruit, trying to perfectly capture the image and essence of it, Unlike Saison, we are not left to our own devices to stumble around in fear or anxiety over our inability to get it right. What is so comforting to me is that while I'm getting another look at Jesus, going back to the canvas of my heart, getting another look at Jesus, going back to the canvas of my heart, getting another look at what he's called me to be as a pastor, as a leader, as a podcaster, as a youth president, and then going back to my heart, The whole time that I'm scraping stuff off and putting new paint on the canvas of my heart, that the Holy Spirit is working in me and he's working in you too. He's working in all of us to produce change and to bring out that image out of us. We're not painting alone. We're not creating alone. The work of the Spirit is involved at all levels of the process from the ability for you to see the image of Jesus and see what he's called you to be to then go and work that out in your real life in in your Monday to Friday or Monday to Sunday life. He's involved in all aspects of that. However, at the same time, we can't lose sight of the fact that we've got to yield our heart to this work of God in our lives. We're not left to our own devices, yes, but we have to yield to the work of His Spirit and obey His Word and pursue holiness because you're still a work in progress. And if you're a work in progress, let's drill down a little bit further. If you're a work in progress, your work is also a work in progress. Your work is always a work in progress. So not only is you the person, you the leader, pursuing Jesus, trying to you know, attain Christ and see the image of God and what he's called you to be realized, the things that you do for Jesus as you lead in his kingdom, that is always a work in progress too. Great ideas take time to develop. As I mentioned earlier, we've got to learn to fail well, become comfortable with failing and be generally being uncomfortable most of the time. For me, understanding that I'm a work in progress and that my work is always a work in progress means that I am moving much faster to the execution of an idea than I ever have been before. COVID, and I've talked about this probably on three podcasts now, this has been a huge thing for me. COVID has, has removed from me my compulsion to overplan and I'm figuring out that I've once I've got clarity on what has to be done, I just need to go out and do it. And if it's not perfect, that's okay. I'll pivot as the situation unfolds because the work is always a work in progress. No one's a prodigy in the kingdom of God unless your first name is Jesus and your title is Christ, right? No one is a prodigy. We're all experimenters trying to figure our way out. So this means that it would be really good for all of us and super beneficial to the work that God has called us to do if we would just move to execution faster. We would just move to getting it done. So yeah, take the time to get the big picture right. Take time to get a you know clear picture of the destination. Make sure you know what your values are and what's important right now. But stop obsessing over how you're going to get things done and just go do it. Go do it. And while you're doing it, never stop evaluating your methods. Never stop asking yourself, never settle and say, is this the best way to do church? Is this the best way to lead small groups? Is this the best way to mentor young adults? Is this the best way to lead a youth group? Is this the best way to deliver content? Is this the best way to engage with people on the internet? Never stop evaluating. The work is always a work in progress. Here's what that meant for us during COVID, we're reopened now, praise God. But but we learned a very valuable lesson during COVID where we're like, before we, we were saying things like online uh, marketing and social media was about advertising our church. Now it's about proclaiming the gospel. We evaluated the method and said, we've been taking out Facebook ads that have been saying, come and see us. Now we're using Facebook to go and tell the world about Jesus. And just thinking through the implications of this a little bit more, and I know I've been all kind of all over the place when it comes to thinking through the implications of this idea, but I didn't want to edit anything out. I want to just kind of share with you all what was going on in my head. So forgive me if this feels chaotic. (laughs) Uh, Finally, none of us as leaders who follow Jesus is probably one of my last points, maybe not, but we'll see. You'll find out if you keep listening to the episode none of us who follow Jesus should ever be trying to get people to revel and bask in the awe of our own human genius and creativity. We should only ever want to portray what we have seen. I'm going to be honest with you that I don't trust myself enough to be clever. I only want to try to show with the canvas of my life and the canvas of my efforts and the canvas of my leadership the image that I am straining to perfectly represent? Well, we always should be confident in God and never doubt in Him or His Word. A little self-doubt, an openness to the fact that we could be wrong in some area of our life, that we're never above being wrong or being questioned, that we don't have it all figured out could go a long way. It goes a long way. Your work is always a work in progress because you are always a work in progress. In the words of David Galenson, the irony of Cezanne's frustrations and fears is that his most recent work of his last few years would come to be considered his greatest contribution and would directly influence every important artistic development of the next generation. Did you catch that? Isn't that so cool? Remember, I I read earlier this letter that Cezanne gave to one of his students. Where he's like, I'm I'm so frustrated because I'm not there yet. And it was at the end of his career, near the end of his life. But the irony of it all was in that moment of vulnerability where he was saying, I haven't apprehended the goal yet was the moment that he actually made his greatest contribution and influenced the artistic development of the next generation. And David Galenson, the guy who wrote this book, he's an economist, so this isn't like a touchy-feely evaluation like these paintings of bowls of fruit speak to me more than the other ones. There's hard numbers to this. Here's what he said. Picasso peaked early. His most important contributions were his early ones. His most major ideas were in his 20s and then the curve of the value of his work dropped steeply as his career progressed. His most valuable work was at his beginning, but his later work drops precipitously. He peaked too early. But in contrast, when you graph out Cézanne's work, the value of his work soars as his career progresses. His dogged pursuit turned him into an artist who continually improved. And despite his own awareness of the flaws of his art, this relentless pursuit of growth to more perfectly emulate that, which he saw translated into a life of slow, incremental progression. As the years went by, what he did got better and better and better. Saison developed into his mid-30s and then spent three decades of serious work that resulted in innovation until his death. The value of his work progressively increased, resulting in his most important contributions being made at the end of his life. And what's cool is this is not unique to Cezanne. This is true of all great experimental artists. In fact, that's what Galenson's book is all about it's looking at old masters. He illustrates that all great experimental artists made their greatest contributions at the end of their careers, not the beginning that a life of continual improvement resulted in massive legacy. I don't want to peak early. I don't want to be the kind of leader that makes a quick splash with a cool idea, but then because my growth was all about me and what I created, I fizzle out. You know, like the guy from high school we all know who's desperately trying to relive the 11th grade. I want to, as Eugene Peterson says, live a life of long obedience in a single direction because doing so precedes an accumulation of excellence. An excellence progression towards an ideal image produces a body of work that influences an entire generation. I know we got so many listeners here that that you're young adults that when I look at the Spotify demographics my my biggest listener group is between 18 and 24 to listen you've got to lead with the long view of legacy how is what I am doing right now impacting those who come behind me your life will not be one of a prodigy but that's okay just keep working and understand your life and your life's work will not be realized immediately Give up your need for instant gratification and commit your life to the imprecise act of looking at Jesus, working on you. Looking at Jesus, then working on you. Yielding to the leading of God's spirit. Working on you, messing up, starting over, and then yielding all over again. It's leaders never stop growing, becoming okay with uncertainty, and never settling because you're not done yet. As always, if this has helped you today, like it, share it, comment it, leave a review, send it to somebody that you feel it'll bless. Thank you so much for listening. You have a great day.